You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The EU suggests that Russia's mounting an ongoing disinformation campaign concerning COVID-19. Russia says they didn't do nothing. TrickBot is back with a new module still under development, and it seems most interested in Hong Kong and the U.S. The Parallax Rat is the latest offering in the malware-as-a-service market. Food delivery services are now targets of opportunity for cyber criminals. Zoom bombing is now a thing. And some advice from an astronaut. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, March 19th, 2020. The EU's foreign policy body, the European External Action Service, has called out Russia for systematically pushing disinformation about the coronavirus. Quote, A significant disinformation campaign by Russian state media and pro-Kremlin outlets regarded COVID-19 is ongoing. The overarching aim of Kremlin disinformation is to aggravate the public health crisis in Western countries, in line with the Kremlin's broader strategy of attempting to subvert European societies. End quote. That's from a document dated March 16th and obtained by Reuters. The document said that there had been more than 80 cases of disinformation about coronavirus emanating from Russian sources since the 22nd of January. Among the more noxious themes is Russian amplification of debunked Iranian charges that COVID-19 is really a U.S. biowar project and charges that U.S. military personnel in what Moscow refers to as the near abroad, the non-Russian former Soviet republics, have been carrying the coronavirus. The general consensus on the origins of COVID-19 is that this strain of coronavirus is a zoonotic disease, that jumped from bats to humans in China. Russia's foreign ministry has harumphed that the EU's charges are unfounded and lack common sense. Spokesman Dmitry Peskov thinks the examples aren't specific enough and that, as usual, Moscow is more sinned against than sinning. Quote, We're talking again about some unfounded allegations which in the current situations are probably the result of anti-Russian obsession, Mr. Peskov complained. This global pandemic has nudged many of us toward a greater appreciation for the interconnectedness of this big blue marble in space we all inhabit. Global supply chains, economies, healthcare systems, nation states, and yes, cybersecurity. 
Thomas Creedon is the cyber threat intelligence leader and senior managing director for the Asia-Pacific region at Looking Glass Cyber Solutions. We caught up with him at the RSA conference. That's the kind of the double-edged sword with regard to public threat intelligence coming out of commercial side or even some of the stuff that's coming out of the DOJ is that while it does give people visibility into there is a threat there, many times a lot of the stuff that we're putting out there is also helping them get better at their OPSEC and avoiding detection. And that's the case both in crime or in traditional cyber espionage. In terms of, of the sophistication of these groups, and, and the types of operations that they do, comparing them to what we're doing here in the United States, for example, um, are, are they are we on equal footing? Do they go toe to toe with us? Where, where do they rank as as an adversary goes? Uh, what's the level of sophistication? Traditionally, we see you know the, the term "advanced persistent threat." Yeah. Majority of attacks are not very advanced. Uh, as far as their capabilities, what would you compare? What would you say our capabilities are? It's mm, a good point. So, yeah, um, we we all assume that, of course, Stuxnet was conducted by UK, US, and Israel. Right. Um, a very interesting operation, interesting tools, but I don't have a lot of visibility into the tool sets that are being used in. U.S. law enforcement, uh, in U.S. intelligence agencies. So probably stay away from that. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting insight. Is there anything when it comes to the Asia-Pacific region that you feel is not getting the attention it deserves? We've seen a lot of the discussion of the uh, Russian influence operations. We've seen some discussion of the uh, Chinese influence operations. And I'm don't want to overhype them because in, in, in many ways they're, uh, we haven't found them to be successful in any way, shape, or form, whether they're targeting Taiwan, whether they're targeting Hong Kong, which actually might be a good thing that we're not overhyping it. Uh, whereas with, with Russia, well, we could have the argument whether it's being overhyped or not, and that's a, that's a longer discussion over beers, I guess. Mm. <laughs> um, but uh, um, there's really not too much. The, the business email compromise is still a significant issue over there. Uh, the cyber espionage, it never went away. Hmm. Uh, there's a lot of talk that, uh, you know, after the Xi-Obama summit, that things quieted down. And for the case of East Asia, it never did quiet down. It's actually quite a colorful region, and you can't really just base on the country itself because of people operating in those countries. That's Thomas Creedon from Looking Glass Cyber Solutions. We turn from COVID-19 for the moment. You do know, of course, that COVID-19 is currently the most popular fish bait in the cyber sea, right? We're going to look at a few other interesting developments. Researchers at security firm Bitdefender report that TrickBot has a new module designed to brute force remote desktop protocol for selected victims. It's designated RDP Scan DLL, and it's apparently still under development. The RDP attack tool seems intended for use against targets in Hong Kong and the U.S. TrickBot began its career in 2016 as a credential stealer focused mostly on financial targets, but its modular design has lent it steadily increasing levels of sophistication as criminals plug in new capabilities. This most recent enhancement, RDP Scan DLL, is being used mostly against telecommunications targets with the other most targeted verticals being education and research, and then financial services, including banks. The criminal campaign is being run from a dynamic set of command and control servers, most of them located in Russia. 
Morphosec Labs have released more technical information on the Parallax remote access trojan. Parallax has recently figured in coronavirus-themed attacks. Morphosec sees the more recent Parallax rat campaigns as representative of a trend toward malware as a service, which has made effective attack tools available to criminals who don't need to have the skills necessary to developing their own malware. Here are a few new bits of criminality we confess we hadn't particularly expected. Retrospectively, however, they seem fairly obvious, especially in these challenging times. First, SpyCloud warns that hoods are sharing instructions in their chat rooms on how to hijack food delivery services. The objective being, of course, free food. Free for them, not for the homebound who pay for and actually need the deliveries. Second, with video conferencing seeing heavy use as people work remotely, TechCrunch reports that Zoom bombing is now a thing. That is, Iago-like skids are trolling Zoom virtual meetings and sharing unusually repellent, violent, or pornographic content as your screen. The objective being, of course, the lulls. They're like Iago in terms of motiveless malice, not in terms of invention or cleverness. Losers with time on their hands. And bleeping computer reports that high-minded criminals say they won't use ransomware against hospitals during the present pandemic, says the gangs, but the Register and the Telegraph seem reluctantly moved to skepticism. Remember what we just said about food-stealing skids? Sure, sure, technically, of course, it's not ransomware, but it's a fair representation of the criminal mindset. Security firm Emsisoft, which specializes in developing decryptors for ransomware, and which is offering its services for free during the pandemic, has appealed to the extortionists as fellow human beings, people who themselves have families and loved ones, and asked them to tone it down while everyone's dealing with COVID-19. We hope they reach the criminals' ears, but we have to admit there's not a lot of reason to expect altruism, public spirit, or even fellow feeling from the hoods. Finally, we've seen lots of advice about how to work remotely, effectively, and securely during the present pandemic, and you'll find plenty of links to such advice in this week's worth of the CyberWire's daily news briefing. Check it out. Some of it includes various offers of free services. But there's also some general advice, call it lifestyle advice, from an unexpected source. Dr. Rendezvous himself explains how to get through the lockdown, quarantine, and confinement, Buzz Aldrin, Apollo 11 lunar module pilot and alumnus of that Andromeda-strain-style quarantine the astronauts endured at the Lunar Receiving Laboratory in Houston, has offered us all not to take so much advice as an example. Ars Technica asked Dr. Aldrin what he was doing to protect himself from the coronavirus. The second man on the moon immediately replied, lying on my backside and locking the door. He used a different word than backside. The astronaut also suggested that one might pass the time the way he did back in the day, watching ants crawl around and filling out government travel vouchers. For government travel vouchers, fill in whatever company forms you may have been putting off or even, heaven forfend, income tax documents. There may be some lessons here for telework, or at least for phoning it in. Ours calls Dr. Rendezvous a national treasure, and what can one do but agree? Let's stay safe out there. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. 
your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And I am pleased to welcome back to the show Andrea Little-Limbago. She is the chief social scientist at Virtrue. Uh, Andrea, you've been a guest on the show before, but this is uh, uh, my opportunity to welcome you to our partner segments. Uh, so welcome to the CyberWire. Oh, thanks so much. I'm thrilled to be uh, a partner with you. And I've always loved the, the podcast. This is an exciting opportunity for me. Well, let's get to know you a little bit. Um, first of all, uh, your title, chief social scientist, uh, what goes into that role? And that's uh, also one of the most frequently asked questions I get because there are so few social scientists actually in cybersecurity. And quickly, you know, and I'll start off explaining what it is by an anecdote that about five years ago, I was asked almost everywhere I went, why is there a social scientist in cybersecurity? And I now no longer get asked that question at all. Uh, and it's more so, what different areas are you focusing on? And so hmm. the position and just the applications of social science have evolved a ton over the last five years. And so really the, my job now and in the past has it covers uh, several different areas. Uh, one can focus on the human-computer interaction. And so we hear a lot about usable security and usable privacy and making it more user-friendly. And so looking at how different applications enable various kinds of security settings and data integration and analysis and those kind of things is, is one component of it. Another core component of it is looking at the geopolitics of cybersecurity. So really looking at the behavior of nation-states, criminals, terrorist groups, the, you know, the whole range of attackers as well as you know, what kind of tactics and techniques and procedures they're using, what are the motivations, how the groups interact. Um, and then also along those lines, on the defensive side, you know, how are defenders adjusting to those kind of attacks, uh, both on the technical side, but also on the legal and policy side is another component. And then I would add probably a third one that I try and integrate is really just within the industry itself, uh, focusing on you know, within companies, helping professional development and growth of uh, our technical folks and helping guide and sort of serving as an editor-in-chief of the technical content 
so that when it is distributed, it's, it's more consumer friendly for a broader audience. But then also looking at you know, growing companies and helping with the industry in the areas of diversity, equity and inclusion. Yeah, it's really interesting to me, as you mentioned, this evolution, this recognition that uh, the human side, the social side of this technical industry is uh, more important than ever. Right. And it's you know one of the things where you know, as a social scientist, it has always driven me nuts that I always hear the human is the weakest link in this, you know, in security. Hmm. And while absolutely when we, we see the data on spear phishing and so forth, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's really I've always seen it as a cop out for explaining why technology isn't doing what it should be doing. And you know, one of my favorite quotes uh, by Martin Groden is along the lines of the humans are features, not bugs. And, I, and that's how we really need to start looking at it is making the technology work for humans, understand the kind of human behavior that drives why they're clicking on links. I mean, the fact that we're still focused on not clicking on links is, a, is a, one of the top lines of defense is uh, it's a little bit baffling given human behavior and given what our, the business needs are. And so the, the industry is evolving, though, and that's what you know, it's interesting seeing you just, you know, just saw it at RSA, the human element was the core theme. And so I, I, just, I do see the industry changing a fair amount, starting to look at all the different implications and how it's really a socio-technical system of the humans interacting with the technology and then building the tools to a, a, you know, address those and also keeping in mind sort of the unintended consequences that may happen, especially when you think about AI models that you're building, but also along the lines of just you know, visualization and human interaction and so forth. Can you give us some insights onto, uh, into what your career path? Um, what led you uh, to this line? It so far has been really uh, circuitous, I, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I started off very much so in the national security space and really interested in international relations and earned my PhD in uh, political science with a focus on international relations and uh, conflict and cooperation amongst uh, nation states, uh, but also along those lines with a focus as well on, uh, on democracy and building democracies and also how democracies decline. And so that took me to teaching in academia for a short period of time before I uh, got recruited into the Department of Defense and worked at an uh, analytics center called the Joint Warfare Analysis Center. And that's mm-hmm. actually where I really started getting more into the realm of working with engineers and other kinds of data sources, as you can imagine, in that area, in conjunction with a broad range of computational social scientists. And so I was a technical lead of a team there that focused more so on the counterterrorism effort. And this was, you know, in the you know, late aughts, I guess if we can call the decade mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's when that when the DOD was realizing that the human element really did matter. You know, and, and it's interesting, when I first got into cybersecurity, I wrote something that was very similar along the lines of how in the counterterrorism realm, there was an evolution for first trying to focus on kinetic and then starting to realize that humans matter and, and then how to try to you know, adjust behavior, anything from economic governance and democracy and development to just you know, influence operations and so forth as far as you know, the, the whole winning the hearts and minds notion. And you know, cybersecurity, I feel like, has gone under a very similar evolution as far as focusing mainly on the technical and then starting to now look at how the humans interact. Mm. And so that was, you know, that was the DOD. I was there for about five years leading a team there and then um, have since then gone to a couple of different smaller startups working across those various realms that I described earlier at first at Barrico Technologies. I uh, was at Endgame for about five years, which is at Endpoint Security, uh, and now at Virtual focusing on uh, data protection and privacy and security. Well, we're glad to have you join us. Uh, Andrea Little Limbago, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much.
Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. 